I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. I'm Ryan Grimm, and this is Deconstructed. On Wednesday night, Joe Biden gave his first presidential address to a joint session of Congress, though it was sparsely attended so that social distancing could be observed. Before we get to the substance of his speech, one quick pet peeve. Basically, every member of Congress and every Supreme Court justice is vaccinated. Meanwhile, we have a national panic about people refusing to be vaccinated. Wouldn't it have been good to have those seats packed with vaccinated representatives just to show people across the country that this is why you should get the jab, so that you can go back to doing the things you did before the pandemic started? That image would be worth more than a thousand shamings. Instead, what message does an empty chamber send? That even if you do get your vaccine, your life doesn't really change? That's absurd. And I think Democrats need to do a better job showing people the benefits of vaccination, beyond the obvious benefit of not dying, of course. In any event, Biden was there to pitch what he's calling the American Families Plan. And as our guest Matt Brunig notes, support for families and children has long been a blind spot in the United States. This is the area where the U.S. welfare state lags the rest of the world by the most. We really don't have child care benefits. We don't have paid leave benefits. Raising kids today in the U.S. is hard. Millions of people get no paid parental leave. Daycare is insanely expensive, and we do close to nothing to help make it affordable. You're lucky if your school has pre-K. Until Biden signed into law a temporary refundable child tax credit, there was little in the way of financial help for parents, even though they're doing the thankless task of caring for the next generation of humanity. Now note that I said thankless, not loveless. I think you know what I mean. Once our children are old enough to go to school, the problem parents confront is finding a decent one. After that comes the exploding cost of college. The plan Biden laid out Wednesday night doesn't do enough to address all of these obstacles, but it does try to deal with each one. The plan would extend Biden's child tax credit, the one that cuts child poverty in half, through 2025. It would also subsidize daycare so that what parents pay is capped. Low- and middle-income families will pay no more than 7% of their income for high-quality care for children up to the age of five. It adds four new years of free schooling. Two years of universal high-quality preschool for every three-year-old and four-year-old, no matter what background they come from. When you add two years of free community college on top of that, you begin to change the dynamic. It reforms the unemployment system and extends benefits automatically if economic conditions deteriorate. It makes permanent the expanded subsidies for Obamacare and lowers drug prices by finally letting Medicare negotiate. The American Rescue Plan lowered health care premiums for 9 million Americans who buy their coverage under the Affordable Care Act. Let's make that provision permanent so their premiums don't go back up. The Affordable Care Act has been a lifeline for millions of Americans, and the pandemic has demonstrated how badly it's needed. Let's lower deductibles for working families. And let's lower prescription drug costs. 
The last president had that as an objective. We all know how outrageously expensive drugs are in America. In fact, we pay the highest prescription drug prices of anywhere in the world, right here in America. Nearly three times for the same drug what other countries pay. Let's give Medicare the power to save hundreds of billions of dollars by negotiating lower drug prescription prices. It won't just tell people on Medicare. Lower prescription drug costs for everyone. And the money we save can go to strengthen the Affordable Care Act and expand Medicare coverage benefits without costing taxpayers an additional penny. It's within our power to do it. Let's do it now. One interesting note, that reference to the last president, that was ad-libbed. It wasn't in his prepared remarks. The plan would also introduce 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave. It would include tax hikes on the rich. We take the top tax bracket for the wealthiest 1% of Americans, those making over $400,000 or more, back up to where it was when George W. Bush was president, when he started, 39.6%. That's where it was when George W. was president. Families making a million and more would pay ordinary income taxes on capital gains rather than the current discount, which would impact private equity funds. We're going to get rid of the loopholes, allow Americans to make more than a million dollars a year and pay a lower tax rate on their capital gains than Americans who receive a paycheck. Biden, in his speech, linked his climate plan to job creation. For too long, we failed to use the most important word when it comes to meeting the climate crisis. Jobs. 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 And link that to being able to comfortably raise a family. The American Jobs Plan is going to create millions of good-paying jobs, jobs Americans can raise a family on. As my dad would then say, with a little breathing room. Biden's address was a textbook example of what progressive, multiracial populism can sound like. Populism that doesn't rely on demonizing immigrants or welfare queens or thugs or whatever epithet a lazy right-wing populist needs to rally a narrow section of the country around him. Biden even took the populist love a step further. Listen to this riff. And it's worth knowing that the first part you'll hear was ad-libbed by Biden and wasn't in the prepared remarks shared with the media. I've always said, in this chamber and the other, good guys and women on Wall Street, but Wall Street didn't build this country. The middle class built the country, and unions built the middle class. So that's why I'm calling on Congress to pass Protect the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, and send it to my desk so we can support the right to unionize. And by the way, while you're thinking about sending things to my desk, <laughs> let's raise the minimum wage to $15. No one working 40 hours a week should live below the poverty line. The way he talked about tax hikes on the rich could probably be played to focus groups and find almost universal approval. Who could disagree with this? According to one study, CEOs make 320 times what the average worker in their corporation makes. The pandemic has only made things worse. 20 million Americans lost their job in the pandemic, working in middle-class Americans. At the same time, roughly 650 billionaires in America saw their net worth increase by more than $1 trillion in the same exact period. Let me say it again. 650 people increased their wealth by more than $1 trillion during this pandemic. And they're now worth more than $4 trillion. My fellow Americans, trickle-down economics has never worked. And it's time to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out. 
Here he is framing the increased funding for the IRS. And the IRS is going to crack down on millionaires and billionaires who cheat on their taxes. It's estimated to be billions of dollars by think tanks that are left, right, and center. I'm not looking to punish anybody, but I will not add a tax burden, additional tax burden to the middle class in this country. They're already paying enough. I believe what I propose is fair, fiscally responsible, and it raises revenue to pay for the plans I propose and will create millions of jobs that will grow the economy. When you hear someone say they don't want to raise taxes on the wealthiest 1% or corporate America, ask them, whose taxes you want to raise? Instead, who's we going to cut? To get a sense of just how hard this stuff is to counter from the right, take a listen to Senator Marsha Blackburn's appearance yesterday on Fox. Three-year-old pre-K, they're going to mandate this. Two years of college, whether you like it or not. These are the things that take away choices from the American people. That is complete nonsense. Of course nobody will be forced to go to community college. You're not even forced to go to 11th grade. And Biden has been clear nobody under $400,000 gets a tax hike. But let's cut to what this is really about. Senator, the president's plan directs trillions of dollars to families and children. So why are you calling it the anti-family plan? Stuart, it is the anti-family plan. What this would do is incentivize women to rely on the federal government to organize their lives. It takes away from them the ability to organize their family life as they would like to organize it. And there you have it. What Blackburn is saying is that if a mother knows there's help from the public available to her, she might not want to stay in whatever situation she's in, whether she's liking it or not. Government help for young parents might seem like an obviously good thing to most people, but folks like Blackburn see it as a threat to traditional patriarchal family values. For background on Blackburn and the place she comes from, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our episode from last October that looked at the movement behind Amy Coney Barrett, because that's where the opposition to this plan comes from. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina delivered the Republican rebuttal, and while Biden's speech largely focused on class, Scott zeroed in on race and woke corporations. Today, kids are being taught that the color of their skin defines them again. And if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. From colleges to corporations to our culture, people are making money and gaining power by pretending we haven't made any progress at all. By doubling down on the divisions, we've worked so hard to heal. You know this stuff is wrong. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. When Congress debated and passed Biden's last $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, the GOP was focused on Dr. Seuss. This time, it looks like their ire might be directed at Coca-Cola. But either way, they seem unable to mount any serious opposition to Biden's agenda the way they did against Obama. Now, over the next few weeks, you'll likely hear plenty of opposition from the left about what's not in the package. An estate tax, for one, didn't make the cut, nor did a wealth tax. On the health care front, Biden ran on offering a public health insurance option and lowering the Medicare age to 60. Neither of those made it in. As listeners of this show know, its founding host, Mehdi Hassan, left to host his own show with NBC. On Wednesday, he interviewed Biden's spokesperson, Karine Jean-Pierre. I want to play a bit of their interaction. 
As it comes to health care, Biden has said this, President Biden has said this over and over again. He believes health care is a right, not a privilege, which is why he expanded the open enrollment for ACA, which now we have more than 500,000 people signed up, have signed up for it. Um, he has been wanting to make sure, with even with the American Rescue Plan, that we lower the cost of premiums when it comes to ACA. But so Kareem, he's done a lot Kareem, of work I have to jump that. in. Yeah, absolutely. I have to jump this is in. your show, Mitty. This if, is your if, show. <laughs> I'm, I'm jumping in. No, no, but you're, you're my guest. You're my guest. Yes, if yes. I have to jump in and say, if healthcare is a right, if healthcare yes. is a right, then many people listening would say it should be free. You shouldn't have to pay for it if it's a right. And if you don't support Medicare for all, which we know he doesn't, at least support lowering the Medicaid, bring more people into Medicare from 55 I, I, or 60. No, and I get that. I hear what you're saying, Mehdi. And we know, and Joe Biden has been pretty clear, he wants to take incremental steps, right? He wants to make sure that we take those steps forward and bring people along. I mean, this is what, one of the, you know, we're talking about how polarizing this country is. You, you started saying that at the beginning of the segment. One of the things about Joe Biden that pe one of the reasons I would say he won is because people knew he would bring the country together. To say that Biden wants to move incrementally is interesting. Now, lowering the age incrementally down to 60, of course, is by definition incremental. But she's hinting at a larger phenomenon with Biden. Here he is, proposing his second multi-trillion dollar plan, one that would be transformative for kids and their parents. But because of his moderate brand, not only is he able to sell it as incremental, he's going to get slammed for not including more, such as the lowering of the Medicare age. And I'm happy to join in on that, because there's really no good reason he shouldn't include it. People between the ages of 60 and 65 face extreme age discrimination in the job market and way too often have to put off treatment or tests for years waiting for Medicare to kick in. That's cruel and it should be stopped. Nancy Pelosi, however, has pushed the White House hard not to lower the age and instead to invest its energy in strengthening the Obamacare exchanges, which she considers her legacy. In a 50-50 Senate, Biden needs the vote of Bernie Sanders, though and we'll find out whether he and progressives in the House are ready to play hardball. Now I want to pause for a quick note of thanks. The last two weeks, we ran a promotion where anybody who made a contribution of any size to the show would get a signed copy of my book, We've Got People. My living room is now filled with boxes of books I need to sign, and I promise I'll get to it soon. The offer runs for the rest of this month, so if you want your copy, Go to theintercept.com slash give and make a donation to support the show. That's theintercept.com slash give. Okay, to take a closer look at the American Families Plan, I'm joined now by Matt Brunig. Matt founded the progressive think tank People's Policy Project, which relies largely on small donors. In early 2019, he put out what he called the Family Fund Pack, a sweeping set of policies aimed at making raising kids in America somewhat less impossible than it is today. He modeled the policies on the most effective programs in operation in Europe and Asia, and at the time, it seemed like a nice thing to talk about, but not the kind of thing that a country as barbaric as ours might actually take up and pass into law. Matt is also the co-host with his wife, Liz Brunick, of the great podcast, The Brunicks. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Matt Brunig, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, you know, as somebody who has spent so much time, you know, thinking and writing about these particular policies. What's it like for them to actually be talked about in a mainstream way like this? Uh, you know, it is exciting. Uh, you know, this is the area where the U.S. welfare state lags the rest of the world by the most. Um, obviously, on every facet of our welfare state, we are usually not, uh, you know, near the top. But this is one where we just big holes missing. You know, we've got pensions for old people and disability benefits, mm -hmm. but we really don't have child care benefits. We don't have paid leave benefits. And until recently, we didn't have child allowance that at least partially extended to the poorest. So to see us sort of fill out the welfare state, uh, you know, topically is is exciting. The, the child tax credit is already in law for one year. Uh, this extends it through 2025. What do you think of that timeline? And also, what do they need to do to, to fix the child tax credit? Yeah, so one, one thing I've been trying to uh, bring attention to is we do we have two tax credits for families with children that are basically for, for almost exclusively families children. You've got the child tax credit and you've got the earned income tax credit. And for the child tax credit, they made it so that the poorest people could now get it. Previously, if you didn't have mm -hmm. enough money, you couldn't get it. They did not do that for the earned income tax credit. So we've kind of caught ourselves in an interesting situation where sort of half the benefit amount is still not available to the poorest kids. And mm -hmm. I've kind of been pushing to say, look, whatever other problems exist with this structure, we should at least extend the EITC down, just like we extended mm -hmm. the CTC down. Um, and we are not seeing that in this proposal. So, you know, that's a letdown. Right. And then, like you said, they're letting the benefit cut down from 3000 per kid to 1000 per kid in 2026. That's how they're setting it up. They're, they're sort of pre-scheduling massive cuts to the program in 2026 as a, a budget gimmick to kind of get the number down in the 10-year CBO scoring window. And yeah, that seems like a really bad idea. 2026, so we'll have had a presidential election by then. We'll have had two congressional elections by then. You have no idea mm -hmm. what that's going to look like. So for, for something that is our first time that we, in a long time, that we're really giving kind of unconditional cash benefits to the poorest families and then to set that up to expire, mm -hmm. as, you know, kind of play chicken with in five, six years is, you know, not inspiring. And part of it is a function of the, the artificial, uh, you know, construct of the reconciliation process that, you know, you know it is, it's supposed to expire in, in 10 years, though, if you have it paid for, you can make policies permanent, but also the artificial construct around, well, we're not going to spend more than X amount. And you have, you know, competing factions, both in Congress and in the White House who say, well, if we if we make that permanent, then we can't do the hundreds of billions for these other programs that we want to put into this 
it's impossible to say where we'll be in 2025. But like you said, there will be several congressional elections, very likely that they lose the House in one of those, also possible they lose the White House. What's your sense of how likely this is to be adopted by Republicans? Let's say it goes into place. People like it over the next four years. Republicans are in power. Do they extend this? Uh, it's hard to say. I think I think the risk you have here, if you force it to where it has to be addressed, right, where it's not just baked in, mm-hmm. one of the risks you run is, okay, yes, Republicans, they don't want to have on their head that they cut the child tax credit from 3000 to 1000 But they might be happy to, in the process of reviving it, to get rid of the benefits to the poorest because they've been opposed mm-hmm. to that for the most part, except for Mitt Romney. The Republicans have been very much saying this decision to extend the child tax credit to the poorest families, that's a mistake. It's going to cause worklessness and, and all those sort of maladies that go along with that. I could definitely see them saying, all right, well, look, it's going to expire and it's going to cut down to a thousand. So we have to address it. And so let's go ahead and, and get rid of that extension to the poorest. That, that, I think, is a very serious risk. And it seems to be a risk that Democrats are taking somewhat seriously because Although they're letting the benefit cut from 3000 to 1000 in 2026, they are saying that that $1,000 amount will go entirely to the poor. So they are extending the sort of full refundability permanently, but they're not extending the benefit amount permanently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't really protect you because they're still going to have to address it at that moment, you know, to fix it. It, it feels politically like it might make sense then to push the EITC down to zero, down to the lowest level, so that the poor can also participate in that program, then you finally get more buy-in. Is there any appetite for that in the policy community? Like, it it feels like it should be a no-brainer at this point. If you can do child tax credit, you can do the other one. Yeah, I mean, I know there's appetite among progressives in Congress who I've talked to. And, you know, I think there might be a fight brewing uh, on that. You know, you never know. People tell you things that don't happen. But my impression is that people might fight about that in the coming Mm -hmm. weeks and months. But uh, we'll see. I I mean, I don't know. They're obviously a minority faction. And most people are just kind of thrilled to get what they can get. And so what about the child care subsidies? So Biden is talking about a, you know, he talked, he talked about nobody will pay more than 7% if you make what under a hundred and I think 25,000 or $150,000 a year. And it's some combination of a federal state program. What's your read on that policy? What have you proposed to make childcare you know, higher quality and affordable? Yeah. So for our, uh, for the, the family fund pack, which was my sort of slate of uh, family benefits, our approach was very straightforward. It was just to give local school districts grants that they could use to set up childcare and pre-K facilities, run mm-hmm. them for free, mm-hmm. just like they do K through 12. This one's a, a lot more complicated. You have a sliding scale payment schedule based on your income where they're going to kick in subsidies that says like if you're very poor, you don't pay anything. And then you pay, you know, 1%, 2%, 3%, 4%, up to 7% of your income as your income rises. And then it's sort of capped uh, at that level. And it's also not like building public centers. It's ostensibly all kinds of child care arrangements, including nannies and uh, whatever, private centers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just that's just a lot more complicated. Now you've got to, when you go to enroll uh, in child care, you've got to have that W-2 ready if you have it at all. Uh, if you don't, if you're poor, if you're, uh, you know, working off the books, uh, day laborer, cash only, you know, there's lots of people in, in arrangements where they don't necessarily have good documentation of their income. That becomes a problem. And just 
just the general structure of it is kind of confusing. Like, what I think is interesting about this proposal, and this is true of Democrats generally, is there's consensus on the idea that pre-K for ages three and four should be free, free pre-K. And then you go, okay, but ages two and one, <laughs> now we've got to have this complex. It's like, what is the difference? Why three and four, but not one and two? Um, well, you want, to, you want to instill good work habits and good motivation in your one and two-year-old. It's, yeah, it's important. important. Important not to put them on a dole too early. Yeah, they get that up front, and then you can give them the easy road after they've learned the lesson. Right. And so the, the Obamacare subsidies are also being made permanent. What's your reaction to that? Uh, you know, there, that, the Obamacare stuff is interesting. As you know, the exchanges, which is what the subsidies apply to, mm-hmm. they only insure about 10 or 11 million people, mm-hmm. which is less than 3% of the population. And there's this, but there's this fixation on, this, on these exchanges, mm-hmm. and it, it almost seems sort of like a totem, like paying our respects to Obama, <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it's like, why, of all things, are you fixating on this 3% of the market? But that will, because that's the Obamacare part. And of course, that's not even, what about Medicaid? And, you know, like, there's lots of other things you could do that were changed in ACA, but... You know, I, I guess it's fine. Like, I guess it's fine. You know, it's not that expensive. There's, it, it doesn't insure very many people anyway. So, uh, you know, it's all right. But it's there seems to be an outplaced emphasis on that market, given its size, you know. Do you think there's any chance that uh, they they force a lowering of the Medicare age down to 60? It, it almost feels deliberate from Biden at this point that he will put out this multi-trillion dollar project that has progressives pretty excited across the board, but then he'll leave out some key thing that allows enough people to get angry that it then scans as a moderate thing. Well, if there's anger at it from some certain factions of the left, well, then it must be some moderate Joe Biden program. Do you think there's any calculation like that going on? Because he campaigned on lowering the Medicare age to 60. He has, he probably has the votes to do it. Yeah, I don't know about the vote dynamic. You probably more plugged in that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it does seem like someone like Joe Manchin plays that game. So I guess suppose Biden could play it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we've kind of done healthcare since Obama is to say, look, we are willing to pour in more subsidies, but we're not willing to take customers away. Right. And so right. that's what that would do. So paid leave. What's your what's your read on the the paid leave proposal? And how does it compare to European countries and, and how does it compare to the ideal? Yeah, so it's the paid leave stuff that he put out in, in the document that they released, the fact sheet, is actually extremely short. Um, so it's almost hard to analyze this. I count three sentences that actually have details in it. <laughs> the upshot appears to be that by year 10 of the program, you will be able to get 12 weeks of paid leave. So that's that's a long runtime. Obviously, twelve weeks is quite low with for two parent uh, family. If you're talking about parental leave, that would be twenty four weeks. If you go to a country uh, like the Nordic countries, very typical fifty two weeks or more. But you know they started lower and expanded over time. So I mm-hmm. guess that's you know that's a thing you could do. You could add a thirteenth week, a fifteenth week. You know you can. Mm-hmm. You, you, there's more campaigns to come. 
the 10 year phase in of the program seems, you know, again, they're just sort of playing with the budget window. Did that with Obamacare. Does not seem wise to me. Mm-hmm. Why wait that long? There's going to be more administrations that come in. The hands, you know, it's just, you know, power could change in that period. Right. The only thing that I would really critique of the stuff that he put out, and they're going to need to add more details later to make sense of it, and then there might be more criticisms. But of the details we have, one thing I'm always sensitive to is what is the income replacement rate? How much income are they going to replace while you're on leave? And they say that it's going to be for the lowest mm-hmm. wage workers, they'll replace 80% of their wages. And, you know, you think about a minimum wage worker and, you know, can they afford to give up 20% of their wages for 12 weeks? You know, probably not. You know, at that level of the wage scale, we should probably have 100% replacement. It may be lower for higher wage people, but 80% is is a problem. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and it's, a, you know, not only are people not going to be able to afford it, but you know, the nature of the beast is that Mm -hmm. they just won't participate at all. And so it's like it becomes a screen that actually excludes not just like, oh, you really have to rough it out because you're only getting 80%. That sucks. It's like they're not going to rough it out at all. They're just going to go back to work after a week or two, which is one of the like sort of details they put in the piece. Like, you know, such and such percent of workers go back to work after two weeks. And it's like, well, a lot of them still will if you're only going to replace 80% of their income. And for people who don't remember on the Obamacare front, you know, the Obama really fetishized this trillion dollar figure. You know, he said it wasn't going to cost more than a trillion dollars over 10 years. And so in order to make that work, they took a lot of the more generous benefits and made sure they didn't really start kicking in until half a decade into that 10 year window. And it was it was a con because the benefits would be in place for the entire next 10 years. So, you know, if you're trying to seriously budget for the future, you ought to do it more consistently than that. And so what it ended up doing is making it so that Fox News and everybody else told the whole world what was wrong with the bill, but people didn't get the benefits of it until deep into that decade. By the time they did finally start getting those benefits, you saw people start to defend it when Republicans wanted to repeal it. In, in 2017. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, they, they're kind of doing uh, both strategies here to, to play games with the numbers, right? On the one end, they're mm-hmm. sunsetting the provisions or in the middle of the window so that you don't mm-hmm. have to count the last half of the, you know, years. And then in the others, they're mm-hmm. phasing them in for a long time. You know, that's just no way to run a country. It's ridiculous, obviously, but I don't know. I guess it's sort of par for the yeah, course for Republicans and Democrats. It is. And so unemployment insurance reform, uh, he's, he tackled that in his speech tonight. Um, what was, what, what's your read on how serious this effort is? You know, the, the details are just not forthcoming at the moment, so uh, it's kind of hard to say. I think mm-hmm. perhaps that demonstrates the level of seriousness. Mm-hmm. For a lot of the uh, proposals, they have price tags by them. You know, here's some money and we're going to do this and that. There's no price tag by the unemployment insurance stuff. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think that that's probably very serious. Um, and even as it is, you know, if you, right. if you wanted to take unemployment insurance reform seriously at this moment, given what we just saw, where so many states failed so badly, you would, I think, very reasonably say, look, we're going to bring this into the federal government. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not going to have 53 different unemployment insurance programs that are so outdated and often run by governors who want to run them into the ground. We're just not going to do that anymore. We're going to bring it in and run it just like Social Security. And yeah, no one's really willing to take that step. And if you don't do that, mm-hmm. 
you can create as many rules as you want if states don't follow them and there's really no way to mm-hmm. bring the stick against them then it, you know you're going to keep having these problems so and it feels like a political winner too you know florida botched its uh, its unemployment process so badly and so did georgia and so did so many other states where you had all of these desperate people logging in constantly and getting kicked out and you know being told that they didn't have the right paperwork and just starting from scratch and waiting weeks or months to begin getting their benefits. And it feels like if, as Democrats, if you have an opportunity to pin that on those Republican governors who who do deserve, you know, a significant amount of the blame, you would take it. But there does seem to be some real hesitancy to federalize unemployment. Is it is that a function of the budget gimmickry as well? You think the, the federal deficit just doesn't want to take on those future outlays? Yeah, I think partially that's the case. Um, You know, the way it works right now is there is a federal unemployment tax, but if states implement their own unemployment tax, then the federal tax isn't charged or it's like greatly reduced. And so it ends up making it to where like the money flows into state budgets and then flows out of state budgets. And even though realistically they're just cannibalizing a federal tax, it does affect, you know, which column the number shows up in in a spreadsheet. And that, uh, as you know, becomes very important in these debates. (laughs) And then separately, you know, it's just... We've never federalized anything, I guess. Like, one, one, you know, mm-hmm. the history of, of unemployment insurance, uh, as, I, as I understand it from what I've read some articles about, the reason they made it a state federal thing is because they thought that would help them uh, not get it struck down on constitutional grounds. Mm-hmm. So it was never like, they were never excited about doing that, but they just thought it would be easier politically. Um, and now we're sort of stuck with it. So, All right. What about on the tax policy side. What's your take on Biden's push to pump $80 billion into the IRS so that they can start enforcing tax laws against uh, the wealthy? And my understanding is that it's not just that the wealthy have more complicated tax returns, which makes it costlier for the IRS to go after them, but they're going to have tax attorneys. Whereas if you go after the grandma who used the social security number of of a grandchild, they're probably not going to have a tax attorney. And so it's not that the the returns are much less complicated. It's that they're kind of easier. It's easier prey. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know what the appropriate funding level for the IRS is. I think until recently, it was they were funding them at 14 or $16 billion a year, somewhere around there, and, and it's gone down to 12, I think. Mm-hmm. And so bringing it up to 20, account for inflation, that seems reasonable to me because it's 80 over 10 years, so it's 8 plus 12 would bring you to 20, $20 billion a year for enforcement. That like, seems in the ballpark to me, but maybe someone who had... Uh, more information about the nitty gritty of the mm-hmm. uh, of the agency would know, but yeah, I think you know enforcement is important. There's other parts of this as well, which I'm not sure if if they're in in this plan or not, but they've been floated. Just just things like having banks report certain kinds of information to the IRS that currently they don't have to report hmm. uh, could help with a lot of this stuff because there's a, a lot of capital income that you receive um, is not reported to the IRS like in the same way that uh, wage information is. Right. And so, 
you have to self-report or they give you a form at the end of the year or, you know, there's, and, you know, that's just ripe for evasion. If you can get that info directly to the IRS and that, that could help, you know, with a lot of this stuff as well. Right. Because then those rich people know that the IRS has the information. Exactly. And it becomes a lot easier to enforce because you say, hey, I got this form that says uh, you made this amount of money from dividends and you put on your uh, return mm-hmm. that you made this other amount. So that's a problem, you know. Right. And when it comes to wage earners, you know, the, the, they send pretty much everything in, into, the IR, into the IRS. Yeah. If you're just a normal, regular worker who goes and gets a paycheck, uh, all 100% of that is, is given to the IRS every you know, depending on the size of the employer, but certainly every year and oftentimes every quarter or even every two weeks. So. And he also talked about raising taxes on the rich back to the level they were before Trump cut them, as well as ending uh, some loopholes for uh, hedge funds, carried interest, as well as increasing capital gains taxes on people making more than a million dollars, making them pay at ordinary income. Do any of those strike you as structural kind of reforms to the economy? Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, they're good. I think it's good, but mm-hmm. you know, it's just higher tax. You know, I, I don't think that it would uh, would change too much. I mean, we're still talking about a top rate of thirty nine point six percent, and then I guess with some of the like additional Medicare investment tax and stuff like that, it could get up to forty three percent. We had that uh, before Trump. Uh, we had that in the nineties. We had much higher than that in the. 60s and 70s so right it you know more revenue but i, I don't know that it's really going to change a whole lot in the same way that like a right. 70% tax now you now you're talking like well that might actually change decisions people make and that could be good or it could be bad but this just seems like a little bit of draining of income and so so overall as a think tank guy as congress is working to you know write the details of of this american families plan, what would be the the few things that you would suggest to them that they and fix before pushing this through, given that your Biden's probably right that this is a, a a rare moment, a rare opportunity to get something done? Yeah, so it's I've got sort of a variety of things that I'm working on, like specific details. You got sort of reaches that are probably not gonna happen, which is let's get the earning income tax credit also made available to the poorest people. And like, basically let's kind of redo that whole thing that they've done with the tax credits to make it basically what they want to do, but better designed and more consistent and all that kind of stuff. That's a much bigger haul. But then there's also smaller things that I kind of think we might actually be able to get, if we can get it attention and get it in front of the right people that it's not that controversial and won't like offend different people. Um, So things like, I'm pretty sure that the way the paid leave is going to be structured, though you can't tell from uh, the document they put out, but based on what we've seen of similar stuff, one of the problems that the paid leave bills typically have is that if you don't have a certain work history, meaning you've worked a certain number of years in your life and you've worked a certain amount in recent months or or in the last year or whatever, you end up ineligible for benefits. Um, hmm. And the CBO scored a bill a few years ago that was similar to what Democrats proposed today. And they found that 30% of new parents would not be eligible because they would not meet the hmm. work history requirements. 
So stuff like saying, hey, why don't we take that 30% and give them the minimum benefit that's in the bill? You know, there is a minimum benefit. Right. Just put them on. It's like that. that's not going to cost that much. It's the minimum benefit, you know, right. and it would include everyone. And it's probably kind of an oversight more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So st- stuff like that, uh, I think maybe like we could actually make that happen um, as opposed to just kind of, which I will also do, right. just kind of complaining <laughs> about things that they're not going to change. You know? Right. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight, Matt Brunick. Thank you. That was Matt Brunig. Now let's hear what Chris Wallace had to say about the speech over at Fox News Wednesday night. Uh, you know, I think this is going to be a, a popular speech uh, with, with the American public. Uh, he offered a lot of stuff. That was Chris Wallace, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.